Okay, uh, great. Um, this week we are talking about um, different views or alternative views of on grid power relations um, because last week we covered some of the most influential popular perspectives on how grid powers interact with each other, how they um, uh, deal with each other, but uh, that's not the only uh, perspectives. Uh, so this week we're going to introduce different views. But before we get to that, um, just a quick reminder, you know, about one week, one month time, oh, sorry, not one week, uh, one month time, uh, the first assignment will be due. Um, so I think uh, this would be the time to start thinking about your assignment. Um, usually um, the earlier you prepare, uh, the better because um, as with almost everything, uh, the more time you put in, uh, the better outcome uh, you will get. So, uh, okay, uh, let's briefly recap the power transition theory we discussed last week, or alternatively known as a Thucydides trap. So, power transition theory um, has been the almost the same, uh, most important, almost uh, uh, go-to theory to understand contemporary grid power relations these days. Um, we know uh, this is an argument uh, which is, it seems very simple, uh, seems to be uh, easy to understand. There are some key assumptions. Um, for example, it argues um, the world as well as anarchical. Uh, we know uh, there's no central government uh, in the world. Uh, the world is also organized uh, hierarchically. So by that, um, it means there's always this kind of inequality among states. Uh, some states are mm, more powerful uh, than others. So there is this kind of um, packing order uh, among countries. And given that, there is usually a very powerful state sitting on top of the packing order. So you may call it um, uh, the dominant power or uh, hegemon or hegemon. Uh, so this kind of packing order is not stable. Um, so that kind of uh, hierarchy uh, can change. Um, so you see the rise and the fall of grid powers, uh, the most dominant power, um, their dominance um, may not last uh, forever, uh, obviously. Uh, so throughout history, we've seen so many um, past grid powers that uh, had fallen into uh, this uh, repute. Uh, from uh, powerful positions. So in the process, new powers uh, will emerge and replace them. Um, so you have this uh, so-called change of guard at, through this kind of uh, changing packing order. And now this is a problem. When there is this kind of uh, change of guard um, or power transition, the theory argues that the rising power uh, and very often the disgruntled power, uh, which is rising, uh, when that rising disgruntled power uh, reaches the so-called power parity, so roughly of equal status with the dominant one, uh, power transition occurs, but not only that, but also there's a higher chance of conflict and even um, open hot war uh, between the top two. So that uh, is often called the hegemonic war uh, because what is at stake is uh, who is the new hegemon. 
who will uh, maintain the hegemony in the international system. So this has been uh, this kind of a problem uh, has been uh, captured by this popular phrase uh, "cities trap," um, a term coined by uh, Graham Allison uh, from Harvard. So uh, we saw the uh, video interview last week. Now, this is a very elegant and uh, easy to understand theoretical proposition. This argument, and so that's why it has been very popular. But the most popular theory is not necessarily um, the most reliable. And so that's why there's a lot of criticism about this theory. Um, for example, yeah, these are the aspects people um, take issue with. For example, how to measure power. Because when you talk about uh, the transition power, the change of the packing order, then you assume the, uh, the key indicator of that kind of um, transition, which is power, can be measured. Because otherwise, um, there's um, no point of talking about uh, power transition or power shift. And then how to interpret um, historical events uh, because the Thucydides trap. So this uh, theory basically was um, abstracted out of the uh, historical event of the Peloponnesian War happened um, 2,400 years ago. Um, that was a long time ago. So as with any history, uh, the lot for different interpretations, uh, different ways of looking at uh, the same, uh, seemingly same kind of history. So that's um, one aspect of the contention. Uh, another aspect also related to history is whether history um, isn't necessarily the sure guide for us to understand uh, the present, especially whether European history. We know a lot of IR theories come out of uh, European historical experience or anecdotes um, or precedents, whether they are relevant to understanding contemporary history or contemporary international relations, which are no longer your centric. For example, um, Asia uh, is very much now uh, part of the um, center stage. So how Asia, how China can be interpreted uh, through those kind of a Euro Eurocentric historical lens. And also, yeah, this is again related to history, um, whether history, um, the historical kind of material conditions that enabled past history to happen uh, continue to be the case. For example, uh, in terms of power, um, certainly the power we talk about today is very much different uh, to the power um, the uh, ancient uh, Greek people or city-states um, referred to. Um, for example, certainly they did not have uh, electricity, they did not have um, um, uh, fighters and uh, computers, etc. Um, also nuclear weapons. Um, and these are the this kind of uh, material structures. Also the Educational structure or normative structure. Also, people's uh, minds, uh, their ideas could change. Um, they, throughout history, uh, we know um, different ideas uh, emerged, then disappeared, uh, then we have different uh, new ideas, etc. So, those kind of ideas, how do they make an impact on the way countries? 
um, behave and deal with each other. So taken all together, whether uh, there can be a new type of grid power relations, which are not necessarily a repetition of the past. So indeed, that's, uh, that's a question often asked by constructivists. Uh, we know constructivism believes that uh, the world is not purely objective. Um, some part of the world uh, seems to be objective. For example, the sun will rise, uh, the earth will rotate, uh, revolve around the sun, etc. So whether or not you like it, uh, that's, that's the way it is. But great power relations, that's basically human relations. Whether they are condemned to follow certain kind of uh, unchangeable logic, or they are socially constructed. They can be shaped, they can be influenced, they can be changed for better or worse. So, There's so many uh, questions to, uh, to be asked about the dominant kind of theory about uh, grid power relations. Now, coming to this um, question of the measurement of the power, uh, as I mentioned, um, power transition uh, implies that uh, power is something that can be measured. It's like uh, your your de deposit uh, in a bank, uh, for example, you and your siblings, uh, you have different uh, bank accounts and uh, you have different uh, amount of money deposited in the bank. So you can measure that um, when you are richer. So obviously that would be reflecting your, um, your savings. Um, also in IR, scholars um, do not have this kind of a very uh, straightforward measurement, uh, but they do come up with more um, comprehensive uh, measures, for example, in the Lowy Institute, uh, the Asia Power Index. They adopt eight um, different measures, so economic capacity, um, cultural influence, uh, future resources and military power, etc. So there are about eight um, measures, as you can see from this, um, uh, the shape of the uh, each of the circles. Uh, so according to the index, so the United States, as you can see, is still uh, the biggest power, and China is not far behind. Uh, in fact, China, uh, as you can see on the left, uh, China uh, was rising. Uh, its score uh, was- Hang, sorry to interrupt. I don't think the slides are moving at all. You're still on the first slide. Wow, uh, sorry. Um, let me, let me stop sharing. Okay, I don't know why screen two, okay. Probably, yeah. Oh, this always um, trick me. Um, so can you see the, the change now? Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. Um, hopefully you uh, got the basic idea about the um, power transition and its critics, uh, different views on the uh, validity of power transition, uh, how it, um, uh, it can be criticized uh, from these different perspectives. Now, let's see, yeah, let's look at this uh, graph. Um, as you can see on the right, the United States uh, is still the, uh, the biggest um, power, biggest um, circle, if you like. And China uh, is closing in and its score is rising um, to, yeah, within about 10 points uh, of the United States. 
but this uh, score actually was a bit outdated. And so to give you the uh, new score, um, the United States uh, is declining. That was uh, based on last year's data. And China, uh, 67.1. Uh, so yeah, about uh, within five points difference. So you could see this uh, signaling this kind of a power uh, parity. It, yeah, we are close to the point of um, power transition from the United States to China. So if only uh, things would be this easy, uh, if uh, we can really measure powers as if uh, we are marking assets, for example, uh, China would be uh, would get into the HD uh, category, and the United States would fall uh, below that uh, eighty percent mark. Um, the problem is um, very often uh, these kind of powers, uh, whether they are measured uh, in accordance with the economic capacity or military capabilities of technology and soft power, uh, they are inevitably uh, subjective. It depends on how you measure it. Um, so the measurement is by no means uh, an objective exercise. Uh, for example, the measurement of economic power, this depends on the assumption that economy can still be divided neatly into national economies. But the, the problem is um, whether that's still the case. You tell me, yeah, your experience. Um, the, when we talk about, yeah, the GDP, of course, is a, a big measurement, but very often the GDP reflects um, the gross uh, domestic product. Uh, for example, foreign investment, uh, the, the activities generated by foreign owned enterprises would be counted as your own domestic uh, product. And bilateral trade um, used to be a good measure of uh, the strength of uh, economies, uh, relative economies. But again, for example, uh, Japanese car factory uh, in China uh, its export to Japan would be counted as um, China's export to Japan. And also investment, uh, we know the investment now comes from almost every, everywhere. Uh, they, they do not necessarily uh, reflect neat uh, national origins. Uh, and infrastructure, uh, currency, they are constantly, um, they, they transcross um, national boundaries. Uh, they are traded uh, on the international currency market uh, every second. So they, this uh, presents all sorts of problems, whether um, we can still meaningfully talk about a national economy and a national economic power. Uh, military power perhaps uh, is uh, more um, prone to this kind of a measurement uh, because nations do not um, share military power that often, uh, that frequently, uh, except uh, in the um, form of alliances. So the, the issue is whether um, military power uh, is still uh, that kind of meaningful as it was in the past. For example, after nearly 20 years of the war in Afghanistan, the United States, the most uh, powerful military in the world, could not uh, overpower the Taliban for nearly 20 years. Um, so what does that tell us? So certainly, uh, if you measure the military power of the United States versus the Taliban, uh, they are not in the same universe. But in reality, um, 
that's uh, that's the way we uh, we are at. So that's where we are. Um, there is almost this kind of a stalemate uh, between the two. Um, also, when you count of account about this kind of a power transition, the military power transition, whether we we should count uh, the United States military power alone, or whether U.S. military alliances as part of its military power. Because on that score, China probably would never uh, going to be able to replace the United States as the dominant military power. And also technologically, we know um, China has been catching up really fast, but still in some uh, very key cutting edge uh, technological areas, uh, the United States' the dominance is still uh, quite uh, significant uh, in terms of the microchip and or, uh, in terms of those big tech, uh, Google, um, Amazon, etc. Uh, so now, of, of course, soft power. I I ask you, I I I wonder whether you see a soft power transition to China. What's your impression? Do you uh, like China more, China more uh, as China's rise, uh, power rises or less? For example, yeah, the, um, you, you must have seen a lot of people wearing um, this uh, yeah, t-shirt with this logo. I love uh, New York. Um, if somebody uh, buy you this T-shirt, uh, would you wear it? Yeah, I don't think you'd be very popular in Australia if you wore that shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of peer pressure for you not to, even if you you don't mind. You you even even if you 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 you, you may love Beijing or China. So that's this kind of invisible power that's existing. Um, to influence um, people's uh, perceptions, attitudes, etc., and uh, this kind of soft power doesn't matter a great deal uh, because uh, a power that is hated uh, is probably worse than uh, being weak, being uh, not so powerful. Um, and also, why is that the case? You may think that uh, that's because China is inherently. Um, not likable, uh, it's authoritarian, it has got a very um, bad human rights record, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also you may also argue that also partly reflect uh, the imbalance of media power, uh, the knowledge production. We know a lot of products are manufactured in China, except uh, this kind of uh, social knowledge accept uh, media, um, uh, this kind of uh, news and the commentaries, very few of them are manufactured in China. So uh, for example, um, we are all familiar with those, uh, those outlets, uh, media outlets. So we read them every day. Um, but how often do you come across a Chinese media outlet? Uh, do, you, do you know any? Uh, can you can you give an example of uh, what kind of a uh, Chinese South media? China Post. South China Post. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's in Hong Kong. Yeah, Global Times. That's probably almost the only one which is out there. Uh, very often, it's uh, it's it's been bashed. Uh, it, it's a, um, whenever you mention it, it's uh, uh, people would uh, say it's uh, it's a uh, Chinese. Um, Communist Party a propaganda tool or, or mouthpiece. So you have this kind of a qualification coming with that kind of a media. So every time you are reminded that it's not trustworthy. So that's that's the difference. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you have this vast uh, media ecosystem, uh, which are seen as fair, independent, objective, uh, etc. But on the other, it's propaganda, it's um, it's tools, etc. Um, so that gives you a 
picture of this kind of a complexities of measuring power. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, how we can uh, come with a conclusion whether China is uh, as powerful as it is portrayed to be. Um, but I just give you this uh, sense of difficulties of coming up with a clear cut answer. Uh, but you may manage to do it. Uh, I, I would encourage you to try to come uh, come up with a different formula um, to think about how we understand power. But in, uh, the tricky thing is um, people's understanding of power is so uh, fluid. Um, it can be uh, constructed, if you like, um, as we have seen uh, with the not only the size of power, but also the nature of power, whether that power is lackable or not. And another aspect is how we interpret history. And power transition theory uh, draws heavily on this, uh, the Peninsula War episode, um, but different scholars uh, ask different questions. They some say, well, the same kind of history or historical event may give different historical lessons. Uh, Richard Ned LeBeau said, actually, power transitions are not so common um, in the in history. Uh, rarely do power uh, shift, uh, and certainly they rarely shift as a result of uh, this kind of a differential rates of economic growth or development. So that, in other words, he argues, uh, a country can rarely catch up just because on the basis of economic growth. That, that's the case with Japan, for example. Japan nearly caught up with the United States, but then it uh, fell off, um, had this um, the decades of, um, recession, uh, depression, uh, its economy. So the, the story he tries to say is that uh, power trans transitions are more often the result of wars. World War I, World War II, for example, the United States um, came on top because of World War II. And um, countries fall sometimes also because of war. So the war actually is the causes of power transition and not the, um, the result of power transition as power transition theory would like us to believe. Uh, it's like the, the, the ruin is the result of a cloud, um, not the cause of cloud. Uh, so uh, Steve Chen um, argues that um, as opposed to this kind of uh, assumption that it's the rising power that is more dangerous, he argues that it's actually the dominant, but the declining power that's very often uh, the one who started the war uh, in this kind of a power transition process. Uh, because uh, if you think about it, the rising power, it, time seems to be on its side. Uh, it just need to, uh, to better the time, if you like, uh, to wait uh, until yeah, this kind of a power, power transition takes its course. So it's no, there's no incentive for the rising power actually to uh, interrupt this kind of momentum. Rather, it's the declining dominant power, which believes that, well, this kind of a trend, if it continues, um, I will no longer be the dominant power in the uh, in ten years' time, for example. And now, between now and uh, ten years from now, that's the window of opportunity for me to actually to do something. And this kind of a window of opportunity could um, entice the dominant power to strike first to launch the preventive war to stop the rise of that um, challenging power uh, in its track, in its track to, 
basically, yeah, this has been born out in history. For example, both World War One and World War Two, uh, it was Germany actually. It was the dominant power on the European continent to launch this kind of a prevent war against Russia or the Soviet Union as the rising power. Now, talking about the changing or different material structures, um, we, we know um, the material structures, uh, yeah, we just mentioned about the uh, whether we can still talk about separate national economies. To some extent, uh, still, of course, uh, there is the national economy. Um, economies, yeah, nation states are still these basic units around which uh, economies are uh, operating. But um, as we now see uh, from the vaccine supplies, for example, from the PPE supplies, we are so much dependent on the global supply chains, uh, the global production networks. We do not produce that many things anymore. Um, yeah, look around, uh, around your desk, uh, in your wardrobe, uh, around your house, you can see how many things are produced locally. By locally, I mean nationally, uh, how many of them are made in Australia, uh, maybe Vegemite, maybe, yes, some um, beers, um, probably not a lot. Um, so many things are not just made in other countries, uh, for example, the computer. Um, it's not just made in another country, but it's, it's made in many different countries. As a result, uh, th this is this kind of economic interdependence uh, we often talk about. This is this, this kind of a coupling or entanglement. Um, so in this sense, the world economy is no longer the same thing uh, as um, 100 years ago or before World War I. Some say before World War I, the world was also very interdependent. But I think this kind of interdependent uh, term is not adequate uh, to capture the complexity of contemporary entanglements. In the past, the interdependence uh, between countries, for example, the United, uh, United States, uh, Britain, Germany, they also traded with each other quite a lot, but the things they traded were produced uh, almost exclusively within their nation states. So trade, uh, that was the uh, primary link. But today, not only trade uh, was so uh, interconnected, but also investment, so the production. The production process was distributed so um, finely across different countries. So the same phone, for example, um, different parts uh, are produced or manufactured uh, in different countries, uh, different continents. Then the, uh, because of the um, revolution in transportation, in telecommunication, um, the cost of producing these things uh, decentralized uh, in a decentralized way has been dramatically reduced. So there is the possibility of yeah, having one kind of a path uh, produced in one place, uh, different uh, other parts, different uh, produced in other places. Um, so each uh, specialized in producing one thing. Then uh, you have this uh, just-in-time kind of a delivery to uh, assemble them together and then ship out, etc. So this has really fundamentally changed uh, the picture of the global economy. And also the R&D, the research and the development. Um, we know the, during the Trump administration, um, Trump wanted to ban foreign nationals working in the AI sector. But it happens that about 60% of uh, the scientists, researchers working in the United States 
were foreign nationals, and many of them are Chinese scientists. So if you ban them, then you basically undercut your own research. So basically, yeah, that's the uh, more complex uh, picture of economic interdependence across um, the world that some say would help uh, curb um, conflict among states, uh, but how? And Thomas Friedman, uh, this guy, a columnist uh, from the New York Times, came up with this um, very genius theories, two theories. One is the golden arches theory. Um, so I'm sure you are all familiar with. So anybody could uh, give a quick summary of what that's about? What's golden arches theory? Any idea? But, yeah. The basic argument is that uh, any two countries with uh, McDonald's uh, would not fight each other. So it's like the democratic peace theory. Uh, another one is the Dell theory of conflict prevention. Dell is the computer uh, company. And uh, Dell computer uh, was produced in for uh, about uh, 40, um, 400 different companies and across uh, 30 different countries. So that's, that's a good example of this kind of diversified, uh, widely dispersed global production networks. He argues that, yeah, those countries, they are so economically uh, interconnected, uh, there's no incentive for them to fight a war against each other because they all would lose. Okay, um, that's the global economy. On the military front, we know a major material shift in the world is the uh, emergence of nuclear weapons. In the past, there was no nuclear uh, weapons um, and countries could actually uh, go to war uh, at whim. Um, some say war is the sport of the king. Uh, so it's like a sport. Uh, if they want to play something, then they went to war. But nowadays, uh, you have to think twice about uh, going to war, especially for great powers, because most of the great powers are nuclear powers. Um, you cannot easily entertain the idea of going to war, for example, with India, with China, with the United States, unless you want uh, yeah, this kind of a suicidal outcome yourself. And then um, that's the material conditions, uh, different uh, material conditions. There are also different um, normative conditions or structures in the world now. Uh, they are less visible, but nonetheless, they are no less significant. We know in the past, uh, this kind of norm of the social Darwinism, uh, the survival of the fittest, uh, the, this kind of institution of slavery, um, colonialism, uh, might is right. Uh, this kind of ideas, basically, uh, they are no longer being accepted as politically correct. Although, yeah, still people, some people would uh, believe in them. For example, uh, a few years ago, there is this um, journal article called The Case for Colonialism. Uh, it caused an uproar in the acad academic community. Um, so the article was eventually withdrawn uh, from the journal because the editors received the threat. Um, so this uh, this shows this how those kind of norms are 
becoming so controversial. But then we have new uh, normative structures. So uh, there is this kind of a strong anti-war sentiment. Um, and in practice, uh, war also is no longer that effective or profitable, if you like. Um, you engage in war very often, you are, you are the one uh, who would suffer from it rather than profiting from it. Unlike in the past, a war conquest would gain you more land, population, resources, etc. Uh, also, now the international law uh, rules and the norms and the international institutions, they are there to uh, help regulate uh, state behavior. So states do not live in a, a normative vacuum anymore. Um, they are bound by this uh, less tangible rules and norms, sometimes more tangible uh, international law. So you cannot just uh, behave uh, whatever way you want. Um, then contemporary rising powers, uh, they are rising, of course, in this kind of normative heavy environment. So they are no longer living in this kind of uh, the rule of jungle. Um, so they, they are socialized, if you like, into the existing normative structure. Uh, it's like a child. Uh, a child uh, is brought up in a normative environment. They were to told what's wrong, what's right, uh, what you need to do, what you should do, what you should not do, etc. So states are similarly um, constrained by this kind of a normative um, structure. And then they, once they are socialized uh, into this, all or brainwashed, if you like, um, they accept the existing order. So they are more or less happy, I guess. Um, so that's again, uh, is different from the assumption that they are uh, always disgruntled. Um, and then there's this uh, complaint about why there's always this kind of a European historical events are used as this kind of a theoretical framework for us to understand everything, understand non-European um, uh, countries. And as we know, uh, yeah, these kind of Eurocentric uh, theories or concepts, they are not universal. They, um, in the contemporary uh, environment, many of the rising countries uh, they are, uh, they have different histories, they have their own history, and they may think differently. So that's why uh, some scholars like um, David Kong uh, tweeted, why would we think a primitive battle between two Greek villages from two and a half thousand years ago uh, give any insight into contemporary China? Is that too snarky? Um, so that's uh, his complaint. And Amitabh Achaya said, moreover, the ultimate outcome of that battle was decided by pressing gold, not Spartan uh, Vela. So as you can see, those scholars, um, they are both of Asian origin. Uh, they saw things differently and they are not persuaded why um, different parts of the world uh, necessarily have to play um, the, the historical kind of um, precedence uh, according to European history. Um, indeed, that's um, come to this kind of um, agency question. For example, um, the very fact that countries now are aware of this UCDS trap actually can help us learn something from the past. So if we believe that that kind of trap is no good, um, it will end uh, badly for every country involved, then there's a strong incentive for the contemporary powers to avoid that kind of fate. So we are not necessarily condemned to repeat the past. 
So this is a video uh, clip. I we may not uh, have the time to play that, uh, but yeah, maybe let's just uh, hear a little bit. It's during a trip to Seattle, Chinese President Xi Jinping rejects the notion of the Thucydides trap, which maintains that a rising power and an established power are doomed to clash. There is no such thing as the so-called Thucydides trap in the world. But should major countries time and again make the mistakes of strategic miscalculation, they might create such traps for themselves. He says building a new... So, uh, so basically, uh, people are, uh, are aware of this kind of trap, and so their awareness may help them uh, change course and uh, conceive of different way of uh, relationship among each other, uh, between each other. So that's that's basically uh, the background of China's so-called new type of great power relations proposal, um, how it came about. So this kind of a new type of great power relations, uh, as you can see, uh, based on mutual understanding and the strategic trust, uh, mutual respect of each other's core interests, um, mutually beneficial uh, cooperation. And uh, that's yeah, all the right words, uh, cooperation, mutual respect, uh, trust, etc. So they are all very well and good. Um, if the yeah, countries believe in this kind of positive picture about power relations, then probably we could uh, avoid the tragic, uh, the tragedy of great power politics. Mm. But of course, whether this kind of uh, new vision, if you like, uh, is wishful thinking, whether they are, it's too good to be true, that's basically um, enters the territory of constructivism. According to constructivists, um, yeah, the world is largely constructed, uh, not entirely, of course, but largely constructed. And so what kind of power relations we can have depends on how we can make up this kind of relationship. So if we believe that we are all enemies, uh, like um, realist kind of perspective, if uh, we do not trust anybody, and we are constantly on alert uh, of each other's this kind of a bad intentions, then we can indeed uh, end up in this kind of um, all against everyone against everyone scenario. Um, then Cold War, for example, between the US and China would be uh, a very likely scenario. But according to the um, one of the most uh, influential constructivists, uh, Alexander Wendt, he wrote the um, very influential article uh, many years ago. He said, if the United States and the Soviet Union decide that they are no longer enemies, the Cold War is over. So it's as simple as that. You may, you may think that, yeah, this is too simple, too naive, but indeed it, it's what happened. The Soviet Union decided not to play the game anymore. So the Soviet Union decided to, to change and that change resulted in the end of the Cold War, but also in the end of the Soviet Union, of course. Um, so this shows that how countries can shape their destiny, uh, can, um, can change, so can co-construct. Well, of course, one single country cannot construct uh, the whole world. It need cooperation, need um, reciprocity, etc. So this is basically um, the whole idea of social constructivism. So how the agents uh, behave. Of course, they they are constrained by structures. Uh, they cannot choose their history, or they cannot choose uh, the uh, 
the environment they are operating within, but they can nonetheless uh, interpret things differently. They can define their interests differently, and they can uh, conduct their foreign relations differently. So as a result, uh, you they can in turn change the international structure. So as in the case of the Soviet Union, uh, the collapse of the Cold War actually fundamentally changed the world structure, uh, so much so that um, Fukuyama uh, pronounced the end of history. Um, so that's basically um, the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if you wanted to see a better world, then you may end up uh, with a better world, and vice versa. If you you think the world is inherently dangerous, nasty, then you are accordingly behaving in a way to uh, to be a nasty uh, country, uh, to be aggressive, hostile country to to each other, then uh, you will you will indeed end up that way. Okay. Um, another point is that. We, very often we talk about great powers as if they are all the same, uh, they all behave the same way, uh, they all think uh, alike, etc. In fact, no two great powers are alike. Uh, I don't think that's a very controversial statement uh, because even these no two leaves are alike, uh, according to philosophers. So great powers are so complicated. Uh, they are not internally alike either. Um, in the United States, for example, you have this kind of a polarization. Uh, so many differences in China as well. And between the US and China, they are so different. And their difference is a key variable in thinking about international politics. And that's a weak point in power transition theory because power transition theory just bracket these countries as if they are uh, they are the same. Um, they just have the same uh, different kind of uh, size of power. But in reality, um, if we look inside of the so-called black box, you see so many differences. And the kind of differences also constantly change. So that's why um, we, you know, Next two weeks, uh, we need to look at uh, look inside uh, inside of the boxes and to see how the United States and China, as two great powers, how they have different histories, different cultures, different um, ambitions, and uh, so many differences. Um, so, uh, let, so that's the. Um, next two weeks. Uh, so next week, uh, we are firstly going to the United States. Uh, here are some questions for you to think about uh, for next week. Okay, I think we are uh, out of time. Thank you very much, everybody, and have a great week. Thanks, Chang, you too. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.